0: CHAPTER three OF A WOMAN'S LIFE by Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. CHAPTER three. The next Sunday the Baroness and Jeanne went to mass out of deference to their cure, and after it was over they waited to ask him to luncheon for the following Thursday. He came out of the vestry with a tall, good looking young man, who had familiarly taken his arm. As soon as he saw the two ladies, he gave a look of pleased surprise and exclaimed, What a lucky thing, Madame Le Baron and Mademoiselle Jeanne. Permit me to present you to your neighbor, Monsieur le Vicomte de Lemar. The Vicomte bowed, expressed the desire he had long felt to make their acquaintance, and began to talk with the ease of a man accustomed to good society. His face was one that women raved about and that all men disliked. His black curly hair fell over a smooth bronzed forehead, and long regular eyebrows gave a depth and tenderness to his dark eyes. Long thick lashes lent to his glance the passionate eloquence which thrills the heart of the high-born lady in her boudoir, and makes the poor girl with her basket on her arm turn round in the street, and the languorous charm of his eyes with their whites faintly tinged with blue gave importance to his least word and made people believe in the profoundness of his thought. A thick, silky beard hid a jaw which was a little heavy. After mutual compliments, he said good-bye to the ladies, and two days afterwards made his first call at the chateau. He arrived just as they were looking at a rustic seat, placed only that morning under the big plane tree opposite the drawing-room windows. The baron wanted to have another one under the linden to make a pair, but the baroness who disliked things to be exactly symmetrical, said no. The vicomte, on being asked his opinion, sided with the baroness. Then he talked about the surrounding country, which he thought very picturesque, and about the charming bits he had come across in his solitary walks. From time to time his eyes met Jeanne's, as though by chance, and she felt a strange sensation at these sudden looks, which were quickly turned away, and which expressed a lively admiration and sympathy. M. Delamage's father, who had died the year before, had known an intimate friend of M. Coutot, the baroness's father, and the discovery of this mutual acquaintance gave rise to endless conversation about marriages, births, and relationships. The baroness, with prodigious feats of memory, talked about the ancestors and descendants of numerous families, and traversed the complicated labyrinths of different genealogies without ever losing herself. Tell me, Vicomte, have you ever heard of the saint de Vafleur? Gontran, the elder son, married Mademoiselle de Courcy, one of the Courcy-Courville, and the younger married a cousin of mine, Mademoiselle de la Rochaubert, who was related to the Crissange. Now, Monsieur de Crissange was an intimate friend of my father, and no doubt knew yours also. Yes, madame, was it not the Monsieur de Crissange, who emigrated, "'and whose son ruined himself?' "'That is the very man. "'He had proposed for my aunt after the death of her husband, "'the Comte d'Aretrie, "'but she would not accept him because he took snuff. "'By the way, do you know what has become of the Villois? "'They left Touraine about 1813, "'after a reverse of fortune, "'to go and live in Auvergne, "'and I have never heard anything of them since.' "'I believe, madame, that the old Marquis was killed by a fall from his horse, leaving one daughter married to an Englishman, and the other to a rich merchant who had seduced her. Names they had heard their parents mention when they were children returned to their minds, and the marriages of these people seemed as important to them as great public events. They talked about men and women they had never seen as if they knew them well, and these people, living so far away, talked about them in the same manner.' and they felt as though they were acquainted with each other, almost as if they were friends or relations, simply because they belonged to the same class and were of equal rank. The baron, who was rather unsociable, his philosophic views disagreeing with the beliefs and prejudices of the people of his own rank, did not know any of the families living near, and asked the vicomte about them. "'Oh, there are very few good families around here,' answered Monsieur de Lamar in the same tone as he would have said that there were not many rabbits on the hills, and he entered into details about them. There were only three families of rank in the neighborhood, the Marquis de Coutelier, the head of the Normandy aristocracy, the Vicomte and Vicomtesse de Brisville, people who were very well born, but held themselves rather aloof, and lastly, the Comte de Fourville, a sort of fire-eater, who was said to be worrying his wife to death, and who lived in the château de la vrillette which was built on a lake, passing his time in hunting and shooting. A few parvenus who bought property in the neighbourhood, but the vicomte did not know them. He rose to go, and his last look was for Jeanne, as though he would have made his adieu to her specially friendly and tender. The baroness thought him charming, and very comme il faut, and the baron remarked that he was a very well-educated man. He was asked to dinner the following week, and after that he visited the chateau regularly. Generally he came about four o'clock, joined the baroness in her avenue, and insisted on her leaning on his arm to take her exercise. When Jeanne was at home, she supported her mother on the other side, and all three walked slowly up and down the long path. He did not talk to the young girl, but often his dark velvety eyes met Jeanne's, which were like blue agate. Sometimes they walked down to Eport with the baron, and one evening, as they were standing on the beach, old Lastique came up to them, and without taking his pipe from his mouth, for it would have been stranger to see him without his pipe than without his nose, said, With this wind, Monsieur Le Baron, you you'd be able to go to Etretat and back tomorrow quite easily. Jeanne clasped her hands together. Oh, papa, if only you would! The baron turned to Monsieur de la "'Will you go, Vicomte? We could have lunch over there.' And the excursion was planned for the following day. The next morning Jeanne was up at daybreak. She waited for her father, who took longer to dress, and then they walked over the dewy plain and through the wood filled with the sweet songs of the birds, down to Yport, where they found the Vicomte and Old Lastique sitting on the capstan of their little vessel.' Two sailors helped to start the boat by putting their shoulders to the sides and pushing with all their might. It was hard to move over the level part of the beach, and Lastique slipped rollers of greased wood under the keel, then went back to his place and drawled out his long, Heave Ho, which was the signal for them all to push together, and when they came to the slant of the beach, the boat set off all at once, sliding over the round pebbles and making a grating noise like the tearing of linen. It stopped short at the edge of the waves, and they all got in, except the two sailors, who pushed the boat off. The light, steady breeze blowing towards the land just ruffled the surface of the water. The sail was hoisted, filled out a little, and the boat moved gently along, hardly rocked by the waves. At first they sailed straight out to sea. At the horizon the sky could not be distinguished from the ocean. On land the high, steep cliff had a deep shadow at its foot. Behind could be seen the brown sails of the boats leaving the white pier of Fecamp, and before lay a rounded rock with a hole right through it, looking like an elephant thrusting its trunk into the water. Jeanne, feeling a little dizzied by the rocking of the boat, sat holding one side with her hand and looking out to sea. Light, space, and the ocean seemed to her to be the only really beautiful things in creation. No one spoke. From time to time, old Lestique, who was steering, drank something out of a bottle placed within his reach under the seat. He smoked his stump of a pipe, which seemed unextinguishable, and a small cloud of blue smoke went up from it, while another issued from the corner of his mouth. He was never seen to relight the clay bowl, which was colored blacker than ebony, or to refill it with tobacco, and he only removed the pipe from his mouth to eject the brown saliva." The baron sat in the bows and managed the sail, performing the duties of a sailor, and Jeanne and the vicomte were side by side, both feeling a little agitated. Their glances were continually meeting, a hidden sympathy making them raise their eyes at the same moment, for there was already that vague, subtle fondness between them which springs up so quickly between two young people, when the youth is good-looking and the girl is pretty. They felt happy at being close together— perhaps because each was thinking of the other. The sun rose higher and higher in the sky, as if to consider from a better vantage point the vast sea stretched out beneath them, while the latter, like a coquette, enveloped herself in a light mist which veiled her from his rays. It was a transparent golden haze, which hid nothing but softened everything. It gradually melted away before the sun's flaming darts— and when the full heat of the day began, it disappeared entirely, and the sea, smooth as glass, lay glittering in the sun. Jeanne murmured enthusiastically, How lovely it is! The vicomte answered, Yes, it is indeed beautiful. And their hearts felt as bright as the clear morning itself. Suddenly, looking as if the cliff bestrode part of the sea, appeared the great arcades of Etretat, high enough for a ship to pass underneath, with the point of a sharp white rock rising out of the water before the first one. When they reached the shore, the vicomte lifted Jeanne out, that she should not wet her feet in landing, while the baron held the boat close to the beach with a rope. Then they went up the steep shingly beach side by side, both agitated by this short embrace, and they heard old Lastique say to the baron, "'In my opinion they'd make a very handsome couple,' They had lunch in a little inn near the beach. On the sea they had been quiet, but at table they had as much to say as children let out of school. The most simple things gave rise to endless laughter. Old Lastique carefully put his pipe, which was still alight, into his cap before he sat down to table, and everyone laughed. A fly, attracted no doubt by the sailor's red nose, persisted on settling on it, and when moving too slowly to catch it, he knocked it away, It went over to a very fly-spotted curtain, whence it seemed to eagerly watch the sailor's high-coloured nasal organ, for it soon flew back and settled on it again. Each time the insect returned, a loud laugh burst out, and when the old man, annoyed by its tickling, murmured, What a confoundedly obstinate fly! Jeanne and the vicomte laughed till they cried, holding their serviettes to their mouths, to prevent themselves shrieking out loud. When the coffee had been served, Jeanne said, "'Suppose we go for a walk?' The vicomte got up to go with her, but the baron preferred going out on the beach to take his nap. "'You two go,' he said. "'You will find me here in an hour's time.' They walked straight along the road, past a few cottages and a little chateau which looked more like a big farm, and then found themselves in an open valley Jeanne had a singing in her ears and was thrilled by a strange sensation which she had never before experienced overhead was a blazing sun and on each side of the road lay fields of ripe corn drooping under the heat the feeble continuous chirp of the swarms of grasshoppers in the corn and hedges was the only sound to be heard and the sky of a dazzling blue slightly tinged with yellow looked as though it would suddenly turn red like brass when it is put into a furnace. They entered a little wood where the trees were so thick that no sunbeams could penetrate their foliage. The grass had died from want of light and fresh air, but the ground was covered with moss, and all around was a cool dampness which chilled them after the heat of the sun. "'See, we could sit down over there,' said Jeanne, looking around her as they walked on. Two trees had died, and through the break in the foliage fell a flood of light, warming the earth, calling to life the grass and dandelion seeds, and expanding the delicate flowers of the anemone and digitalis. A thousand winged insects, butterflies, bees, hornets, big gnats looking like skeleton flies, ladybirds with red spots on them, beetles with greenish reflections on their wings, others which were black and horned peopled this one warm and luminous spot in the midst of the cool shadow of the trees. Jeanne and the Vicomte sat down with their heads in the shadow and their feet in the light. They watched these tiny moving insects that a sunbeam had called forth, and Jeanne said softly, How lovely the country is! Sometimes I wish I were a bee or a butterfly that I might bury myself in the flowers. They began talking about their own habits and tastes in a low, confidential tone. He declared himself tired of his useless life, disgusted with society. It was always the same, one never found any truth, any sincerity. She would have liked to know what town life was like, but she was convinced beforehand that society would never be so pleasant as a country life. The nearer their hearts drew to one another, the more studiously did they address each other as Monsieur and Mademoiselle. But they could not help their eyes smiling and their glances meeting, and it seemed to them that new and better feelings were entering their hearts, making them ready to love and take an interest in things they had before cared nothing about. When they returned from their walk they found that the baron had gone to a cave formed in the cliff called the Chambre aux Demoiselles, so they waited for him at the inn, where he did not appear till five o'clock, and then they started to go home. The boat glided along so smoothly that it hardly seemed to be moving. The wind came in gentle puffs, filling the sail one second, only to let it flap loosely against the mast the next, and the tired sun was slowly approaching the sea. The stillness around made them all silent for a long while, but at last Jeanne said, How I should like to travel! Yes, but it would be rather dull traveling alone, said the vicomte. You want a companion to whom you could confide your impressions. That is true, she answered thoughtfully. Still, I like to go for long walks alone. When there is no one with me, I build such castles in the air. But two people can better still plan out a happy future, he said, looking her full in the face. Her eyes fell. Did he mean anything? She gazed at the horizon as though she would look beyond it. Then she said slowly, I should like to go to Italy, and to Greece, and to Corsica. It must be so wild and so beautiful there. He preferred the chalets and lakes of Switzerland. She said, No, I should like to go either to a country with little or no history like Corsica, or else to one with very old associations like Greece. It must be so interesting to find the traces of those nations, whose history one has known from childhood, "'and to see the places where such great and noble deeds were done. "'Well, for my part, I should like to go to England. "'It is such an instructive country,' said the Vicomte, "'who was more practical than Jeanne. "'Then they discussed the beauties of every country "'from the Pole to the Equator, "'and went into raptures over the unconventional customs "'of such nations as the Chinese or the Laplanders. "'But they came to the conclusion "'that the most beautiful land in the world is France.' With her temperate climate, cool in summer and warm in winter, her fertile fields, her green forests, her great calm rivers, and her culture of the fine arts, which has existed nowhere else since the palmy days of Athens. Silence again fell over the little party. The blood-red sun was sinking, and a broad pathway of light lay in the wake of the boat leading right up to the dazzling globe. The wind died out. There was not a ripple on the water and the motionless sail was reddened by the rays of the setting sun. The air seemed to possess some soothing influence, which silenced everything around this meeting of the elements. The sea, like some huge bride, awaited the fiery lover who was approaching her shining liquid bosom, and the sun hastened his descent, empurpled by the desire of their embrace. At length he joined her and gradually disappeared. Then a freshness came from the horizon— and a breath of air rippled the surface of the water, as if the vanished sun had given a sigh of satisfaction. The twilight was very short, and the sky soon became dark and studded with stars. Lastique got out the oars, and Jeanne and the Vicomte sat side by side watching the trembling, phosphorescent glimmer behind the boat and feeling a keen enjoyment even in breathing the cool night air. The Vicomte's fingers were resting against Jeanne's hand, which was lying on the seat, and she did not draw it away, the slight contact making her feel happy and yet confused. When she went to her room that evening, Jeanne felt so moved that the least thing would have made her cry. She looked at the clock and fancied that the little bee throbbed like a friendly heart. She thought of how it would be the silent witness of her whole life, how it would accompany all her joys and sorrows with its quick regular beat, and she stopped the gilded insect to drop a kiss upon its wings. She could have kissed anything, no matter what, and suddenly, remembering an old doll she had hidden away in the bottom of a drawer, she got it out, and found as much joy in seeing it again as if it had been an old well-loved friend. Pressing it to her bosom, she covered its painted cheeks and flaxen hair with warm kisses. Then, still holding it in her arms, she began to think— Was he the husband referred to by so many inward voices, and was it by a supremely kind providence that he was thus sent into her life? Was he really the being created for her, to whom her whole existence would be devoted? Were he and she really predestined to unite their hearts and so beget love? She did not yet experience those tumultuous feelings, that profound stirring of her whole soul, which she believed to be love. Still, she thought she was beginning to love him, for sometimes she felt her senses fail her when she thought of him, and she always was thinking of him. Her heart throbbed in his presence, her color came and went when she met his glance, and the sound of his voice sent a thrill through her. That night she hardly slept at all. Each day her longing for love became greater. She was always consulting the marguerites, or the clouds, or tossing a coin in the air to see whether she was loved or not. One evening her father said to her, "'Make yourself look very pretty tomorrow morning, Jeanne.' "'Why, papa?' she asked. "'That's a secret,' replied the baron. When she came down the next morning, looking fresh and bright in a light summer dress, she found the drawing-room table covered with bonbon boxes and an enormous bouquet on a chair.' A cart turned in at the gateway with rats confectioner, contractor for wedding breakfasts, on it, and Ludovine, with the aid of a scullery maid, took from it a great many flat baskets, which issued an appetizing odor. The vicomte came in soon after. His trousers were fastened tightly under the varnished boots, which showed off his small feet to perfection, His tight-fitting coat was closely fastened, except on the chest where it opened, to show the lace shirt-frill, and a fine cravat, twisted several times round his neck, forced him to hold up his handsome dark head. His careful toilette made him look different from usual, and Jeanne stared at him, as though she had never seen him before. She thought he looked a perfect gentleman from head to foot. He bowed and asked with a smile, "'Well, Godmother, are you ready?' "'What do you mean?' stammered out Jeanne. "'What is it all about?' "'Oh, you shall know just now,' answered the baron. The carriage drew up before the door, and Madame Adelaide, in a handsome dress, came downstairs leaning on Rosalie, who was struck with such admiration at the sight of Monsieur de Lamar's elegant appearance, that the baron murmured, "'I say, Vicomte, I think our maid likes the look of you.' The vicomte blushed up to the roots of his hair, pretended not to hear what the baron said, and, taking up the big bouquet, presented it to Jeanne. She took it, feeling still more astonished, and all four got into the carriage. "'Really, madame, it looks like a wedding!' exclaimed the cook, Ludivine, who had brought some cold broth for the baroness to have before she started. "'When they reached Yport, they got out.' And as they walked through the village, the sailors in new clothes, which still showed where the cloth had been folded, came out of the houses, touched their hats, shook the baron by the hand, and followed behind them, forming a procession, at the head of which walked the vicomte, with Jeanne on his arm. On arriving at the church, a halt was made. A choir boy came out carrying a great silver cross, followed by another pink and white urchin carrying the holy water with the brush in it. Behind them came three old choristers, one of whom limped, then the serpent player, then the curé in a stole with a gold cross embroidered on it. He saluted the baron's party with a smile and a nod, then with half-closed eyes, his lips moving in prayer, his mitre pushed down over his eyes, he followed his surpliced subordinates down to the sea. On the beach a crowd was waiting round a new boat, decorated all over with garlands, Its mast, sail, and ropes were covered with long ribbons which fluttered in the breeze, and its name, Jeanne, was on the stern in gilt letters. Old Lastique was the master of this boat that the baron had had built, and he advanced to meet the procession. At the sight of the cross all the men took off their caps, and a line of nuns, enveloped in their long straight black mantles, knelt down. The curé went to one end of the boat with the two choir boys, while at the other the three old choristers, with their dirty faces and hairy chins shown up by their white surplices, sang at the top of their voices. Each time they paused to take breath, the serpent-player continued his music alone, and he blew out his cheeks till his little grey eyes could not be seen, and the very skin of his forehead and neck looked as if it was separated from the flesh." The calm, transparent sea, its ripples breaking on the shore with a faint grating noise, seemed to be watching the christening of the tiny boat. Great white seagulls flew by with outstretched wings, and then returned over the heads of the kneeling crowd with a sweeping flight, as though they wanted to see what was going on. The chanting stopped after an Amen, which was repeated and sustained for five minutes, and the priest gabbled some Latin words of which only the sonorous terminations could be made out. Then he walked all round the boat, sprinkling it with holy water, and commenced to murmur the oramus, stopping opposite the two sponsors who were standing hand in hand. The young man's handsome face was quite calm, but the young girl, almost suffocated by the palpitation of her heart, felt as though she should faint, and she trembled so violently that her teeth chattered. The dream that had haunted her for so long seemed all at once to have become a reality. She had heard this ceremony compared to a wedding. The priest was there uttering blessings, and surpliced men were chanting prayers. Surely she was being married. Did the vicomte feel the nervous trembling of her fingers? Did his heart sympathize with hers? Did he understand? Did he guess? Was he also under the influence of an all-absorbing love-dream? Or was it only the knowledge that women found him irresistible, that made him press her hand gently at first, then harder and harder, till he hurt her? Then, without changing the expression of his face, that no one might notice him, he said very distinctly, Oh, Jeanne, if you liked, this might be our betrothal. She slowly bent her head with a movement which perhaps meant yes, and some drops of holy water fell on their hands. The ceremony was over. The women rose from their knees, and everyone began to hurry back. The choir boy let the cross swing from side to side, or tilt forward till it nearly fell. The curé, no longer praying, hurried behind him. The choristers and the serpent player disappeared down a narrow turning to get back and undress quickly." The sailors hastened past in twos and threes. A good lunch was waiting for them at Les Poubles, and the very thought of it quickened their pace and made their mouths water. Sixty sailors and peasants sat down to the long table laid in the courtyard under the apple trees. The baroness sat at the middle of the table, with the curé from Yport on one side of her and the abbé Picot on the other. Opposite her was the baron, between the mayor and his wife, The mayoress was a thin, elderly countrywoman, with a nod for everyone. Her big Normandy cap fitted close round her thin face, making her head, with its round, astonished-looking eyes, look like a white-tufted fowls. And she ate in little jerks, as if she were pecking at her plate. Jeanne was silent, seeing nothing, hearing nothing. Her head turned with joy. At last she asked the vicomte, who was sitting beside her, "'What is your Christian name?' "'Julien,' he replied, "'did you not know?' She did not answer him, for she was thinking, "'how often I shall repeat that name to myself.' When lunch was over, the courtyard was left to the sailors. The baroness began to take her exercise, leaning on the baron and accompanied by the two priests, and Jeanne and Julien walked down to the wood and wandered along its little winding paths. All at once he took her hands in his. "'Tell me,' he said, "'will you be my wife?' She hung her head, and he pleaded, Do not keep me in suspense, I implore you. Then she slowly raised her eyes to his, and in that look he read her answer. End of chapter 3